A vague disclaimer is no one's friend. This podcast will look at episodes in relation to Buffy and Angel as a whole, and therefore contains spoilers for the entirety of both series. If you haven't seen all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series, go and watch them before you listen to this. Remember, you've been warned. The hardest thing in this world is to live in it. That's why there's us, champions. We live as though the world were as it should be, to show it what it can be. The Earth is definitely doomed. Hi, and welcome to our new podcast. This is Return to the Hellmouth. We're heading back to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel from the beginning to talk about how each episode holds up and how it fits into the larger story of the Buffyverse. I'm MC, and I'm here with... This is Andy. And this is David. Okay, so we are really going back to the beginning 20 years ago, and I'm really shocked to say that it was that long ago. This was uh, Welcome to the Hellmouth. The first episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, aside from the pilot, which I'm sure we'll get to eventually, it first aired on March 10th, 1997. It was written by Joss Whedon and directed by Charles Martin Smith in his only episode in the Buffyverse. We've all gone back and rewatched this episode recently, so I think the first question we really have to talk about is... How did we get into Buffy in the first place? Like, was it from the very beginning? Or, you know, did somebody tell you about it and you got into it later? So mine is actually a little bit of a long story, but I'd be glad to tell it. I've been watching from the beginning and it was sort of an interesting way that I got into it. So I in college. I was 22, I believe, when uh, the first episode came out. My roommates were like kind of hanging out on a, a Monday night. We had like nothing to do. So we were clicking through the cable channel guide and saw Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I'd always, I kind of liked the movie. It was, it was fun, kind of silly, mm-hmm. but I liked the movie. Um, and we said, oh, you know, that's, you just throw that on, whatever, you know, we'll, we'll watch that and have a nice Monday. So we turn it on and it's not the movie. <laughs> and we're, and we're, right, we're trying to figure out what, what this thing is, and I think we came in maybe just a few minutes late, uh, maybe five, seven, ten minutes late, and we're like, "What? what is this? And then the, the commercial popped up, and it's, you're watching the premiere of Buffy the Vampire Slayer the series. I was like, the series? Are you kidding me? Really? <laughs> so we decided to watch the show and mock it, because we thought it was going to be, like, just terrible. It was on yeah. the WB. It was the series, you know, I recognize Sarah Michelle Gellar, and I can talk about that a little later from all my children even. But yeah, so we were going to sit and mock it. And about 30 minutes into it, I think we were like, hey, it's pretty okay. You know, we watched the end and said, well, we'll watch this again, you know, if we're home on a Monday night. And so I kept watching it sort of on my own when they weren't around and uh, but I don't think it was till the last episode of the first season that I was like, no, this is it. This is my thing. This is my raison d'etre for the rest of my life. <laughs> so, so 20 years on, I'm sitting here doing this podcast, which I'm super excited about because I think it's been like a touchstone for me as a, a person, as a fan, and as a, like a, just a human being. So that's my story. Certainly, uh, you and I met through the Sherlock fandom, but Buffy is the thing that I think we really actually bonded over because 
somehow we figured out that both of us were huge Buffy fans, and it's like, whoa, we have people that we can talk about Buffy with. We ha- we have to start talking about this just all the time. Absolutely. So yeah, I mean, like even after all this time, it's still something that people really connect with. So David, what about you? Yeah, I I actually did not get into it at the beginning. I wasn't watching a whole lot of TV at the time. And people were saying to me, oh, you have to watch this show. You have to watch this show. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. As I do now with everything. But I actually started watching sometime in season three. Oh. So yeah, I wound up not seeing the early episodes until they released them on VHS. Oh, VHS, not even DVD. <laughs> no, not even DVD. It was I have the early VHS tapes still. In fact, I even have a, a UK copy of the first tape for some reason. I don't oh, know wow. why. A friend of mine gave it to me. He's like, oh, you like Buffy? I don't need this. Here, take it. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I started watching in season three and it was just, I mean, honestly, it's just, it was just a good show. I yeah. mean, it's well written. It's well acted. And it was just, it was just very good. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed watching it. So I kept watching it and then caught up on the early stuff when that was possible. Mm-hmm. And watched everything until it ended. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, no, I'm, my story was probably a lot closer than with Andy's. Um, mm-hmm. I watched from the very beginning. I had seen the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie when I rented it from the video store because back in those days I was too young to go to the movies really by myself my parents would never take me to see something like Buffy the Vampire Slayer not because they had anything against Vampire Slayers it was just a terrible movie so they wouldn't take me to see that but I enjoyed the movie Pee Wee Herman you know overacting his death I mean come on how can you beat that we'll talk more about that in a later episode I don't know if I actually knew that the series was going to be coming on I think it just all of a sudden came on my TV one day. I was like flipping through the channels. And the first part that I remember watching was when Buffy was talking to Giles after they found the dead guy in the locker. And Sarah Michelle Gellar's performance on that is so powerful. She's so good. That, that is a terrific scene. One part of my notes is that they actually went back and reshot that scene during Prophecy Girl. Yeah. Oh. They, they had filmed the entire first season and they had just done all of this stuff about you know Buffy dying and then coming back and facing the master. And they came back to film this scene from the first one where she doesn't want to get back into being a vampire slayer. And I think that makes the scene all the more powerful with all of this knowledge that Sarah had about what was Buffy was going to go through over the season. So, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful scene. And kind of as soon as I saw that, I was like, wow, I'm going to be watching this every week from now on. And I did, I, I did not stop watching Buffy until Angel ended. Well, I was going to say, and see that I did a little reading last night also, and I guess that Sarah Michelle Geller kept telling the director, I think I'm too angry. I think I'm too angry. And Joss wasn't on set that day. And so she kept trying to get this director to like let her do it again. And he's like, no, it's fine. So when Joss saw the footage, he's like, you know, Sarah was right. She was very angry instead of yeah. being more intense. So I, I just thought that was an interesting fact to go along with your fact. That I actually noted in, I, when I was taking notes, I actually specifically noted that that scene stood out. It's, it really is very powerful. Oh, absolutely. It, yeah, it, it, it sort of does the whole, you know, one of the concepts of the show is 
real life high school as terror. And I think that scene just really weds the terror of just everyday life for teenagers with the horrors that we'll see in the show with vampires and werewolves, etc. And it really presents that teenage angst in the horror mode. So in going back to rewatch this episode, does anybody feel any differently watching it now than when they first saw it? Well, in my case, I, I think I'm, I'm giving it more thought than I did when I first saw it. Because as I say, I came in around season three. So when I was watching this, I was sort of just kind of binge watching what I could get hold of yeah. to just catch up. Yeah. So I think I concentrated on it more watching it now. I mean, at the time, I think I just was like, oh, this is good. I'll, I'm, you know, and oh, this is what led up to what I'm seeing now. Yeah, I think going back and watching it, I'm going to probably say the show debuted 20 years ago. And I'm probably thinking this at least my 10th or 12th time through the series if not more. So um, season one is not one I usually go back and watch. uh, Just maybe a few sporadic episodes. uh, The ones that I really like ending with prophecy girl moving into season two. One thing I do notice is season one, especially this episode is so like, I'm not talking about tone wise, but it's so dark dark. and vaguely green. Yeah, I, I mm. definitely it's know what you're talking sometimes about. Sometimes really hard to. I think going back and watching it with a, a, a more critical eye to do the podcast, I was just struck about how much that pilot just chugs along, and much of the mm-hmm. dialogue. It's so quick, it's so snappy, and I I felt like I was watching a West Wing walk and talk a couple <laughs> yeah. different times because it is. It just it just flows. It just yeah, the dialogue really works. It yeah. really moves. Yeah, absolutely. It just it just chugs along in this this really even now very fresh way that makes you want to pay attention, not just the performances to that whip smart writing. But I do know what you're talking about in terms of the filming in season one, and even going into season two, they had a very dark filming on it, and I don't know if the WB was not throwing a lot of money at them. Well, definitely during the first season they weren't, but it. Even on DVD, some of the episodes look gritty because of just how dark the exposure is. So, yeah, I can definitely understand that. The music is different in the first season than it is in any of the other seasons, which is something that really stood out to me. It's a lot more B-movie than I think uh, some of the later music was. Was Christoph Beck doing the music in season one? Christoph Beck was not doing the music in season uh-huh. one. Uh, I thought I had it in my notes who was doing the music. Oh, yeah, the score for um, this episode and all season one episodes was done by Walter Murphy. Oh. Yeah. Okay. You, you can tell that it's so. not Christoph because he's a very distinct style and just really writes the most amazing pieces. So mm-hmm. definitely a difference yeah. there. Yeah, I think one of the biggest thing that stood out to me in rewatching it this time is, you know, 20 years after I first saw it, you know, I was 13, 13 or 14 when I first watched Buffy. And so, you know, watching it 20 years later, I'm just like, oh, my God, everyone was a baby. For sure. <laughs> and I mean, I'm even talking about Charisma and Nikki, who are 26 at the time and should not be in high school. But yeah, everybody looked so young. Sarah looked... I mean, I don't want to say plump, but she looked very curvaceous in the first season. She does look more yes. curvaceous in the first season. She definitely still has, I guess we'd call it baby fat. 
Yeah. Yeah, her face is a little rounder than it would become. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You, you can tell, you can see the difference. I mean, it's not a criticism of her, of course. Yeah, she but, looked uh, gorgeous. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely just not what, Just not as she would look later. Yeah. And being in my 30s now, I find myself identifying with Giles a lot more than I used to. Oh, can to. we talk about Giles? <laughs> Little... <laughs> So the first time I saw Giles, I was very much like, oh, he's kind of an Obi-Wan figure. Okay, British guy. Cool. And, you know, and I really grew to love him as the series went on. But I am now the same age that Tony Head was when he shot the first season. So now I'm like, oh, hello, Giles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm kind of the same way. Though I do actually have it in my notes that... Wow, Giles was basically Wesley in the first episode. He's a little Wesley, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I do think that certainly we will get more into that when we get to uh, season three, but Wesley was created to go back to the first season Giles, where he's very unsure of himself and very, you know, uptight and British. Right. And I mean, they did, like, enhance that with Wesley, but... When you go back and actually watch the first season, it's like, yeah, I can definitely see where uh, why Giles was cringing so much when Wesley came in because it that oh, was yes. what he was. I think Giles does recognize pretty quickly how special she is, though. Oh yeah, um, yeah. and how different it, this experience is going to be than what his training had told him. Yeah. Yes, I think he he very quickly starts realizing that he's in deeper than he expected to be. And he likes her more than he expected to like her. Yeah. Yes. There's also the fact that by the end of the first episode, and we are just talking about Welcome to the Hellmouth, we'll do an entire other podcast on The Harvest. By the end of the first episode, we've got Xander uh, into the world of vampires. Willow, we're going to have to wait just, you know about five minutes on <laughs> certainly the um the slayer is supposed to be the one girl and they they're always hammering away at the, the one girl but what mo- makes buffy different is that she does bring in people into this world and she creates a family around her yeah i mean as we'll find out later in the series this is really she is very different from the slayers who came before her mm-hmm. in in that she actually works with people the, the earlier Slayers, from what we see of them, are very much loners. Yeah. And that, I think, is part of what leads to her success as a Slayer, mm-hmm. is that she's able to think outside the, the Slayer box, if you will. And if you look at the Slayers we see later in the series, Kendra, Nikki, the Chinese Slayer, whose name I can never remember, they were right. all sort of pulled from their families. They were not allowed to have those things. And since Buffy was not given a watcher at like birth, probably because mm-hmm. some accidental magic in the universe didn't get the watchers to her. She was able to develop as a human being on her own uh, instead of under the guise of the watchers council. That's actually an interesting point that I'm going to need to look up to see if they ever actually address why Buffy did not get a watcher from birth. If, like, for some reason they missed her. I don't know if they've ever actually addressed that. I don't think they have. No. Was it addressed in the movie by any chance? Was not. Hmm. Though in the movie, it we really only get the idea that slayers are trained with their watchers from very young. When Kendra came in, 
we knew very little about Slayer Lord before that. And then we kind of get more of an idea of that uh, once Faith comes in. But we actually don't know if Faith had been training all of that long or if it had just been since she was called. But then we see in Season 7 that, yes, a lot of um, uh, Slayers in training train with their Watchers earlier. So Buffy is really an anomaly in that she didn't. And yet, even when she does become the Slayer, Giles does not take her away from her family. I mean, granted, her family is living on the Hellmouth. <laughs> and, I, and I made a note about that, that one thing that I really kind of wish that they had done more on the show is dealt more with the mythos about the Hellmouth. Because they, I know the whole reason I had the Hellmouth was just to explain why there are all of these, you know, you know, supernatural things happening in this one small town. But it's this really cool story that they kind of only ever just touch on. And even into like season seven, when they're dealing with the Hellmouth, like all the time, it's still like this very nebulous idea. I'm like, no, I want to know about this. Like, why does this Hellmouth exist? Like, is it, is it necessary that we know another one comes up later? So and I, I don't know if it's like a, I don't know if any of these things are considered full canon, but there are some flashbacks and not the current season comics, the ones that were being released sporadically during the run of the show, showing that how Mayor Wilkins gets to the Hellmouth. Um, mm-hmm. But it ne- they never really explain why it's in that particular spot. I think it's, yeah. as Joss would say, just their phlebotanum. Yes. Yeah. Well, if they really, I mean... If you if you watch this episode, or I, I guess they don't really speak about the Hellmouth per se that much until the harvest. Yeah. But in these first episodes, it's as though Giles is coming across the concept of a Hellmouth for the first time, mm-hmm. and that this is a unique anomaly. Yeah. Later, of course, we would find out there are other Hellmouths. Yeah. And so I have to say that's also with the uh, the issue of Slayers being trained from youth. As I think, yeah, I hate to say it, but it it seems like the continuity people were not really on top of this. It's yeah. not consistent. And the show is good enough that you don't really notice it until you examine it like we're doing yeah. now. But, but yeah, there is definitely some inconsistency here. I found that quite a bit watching Buffy. And believe me, it's my all-time favorite piece of media. But there are a lot of inconsistencies. It's like they didn't go and make that sort of Bible like they had in the X-Files where these were the things that were happening and you had to check it to make sure the writer was getting everything right. I, mm-hmm. I think a lot more was on the fly and, and that makes it very cool in a way. They could change mm-hmm. things up or sort of go off their original plan as things with actors happened or, or whatever it may be. But yeah, I don't. I don't think they had it figured out as much as the fans probably would like. Right. I think later on they ended up coming up with more solid ideas of things. I mean, that's how we get um, the whole arc that goes from graduation day up until um, the gift. There's mm. there was certainly a plan there. By the time we get to season three, you are seeing a lot more continuity carrying through. I mean, I don't think it was like the be all and end all, but yeah, definitely for this first season. I mean, for this first season, they didn't know that they were going to get more than 12 episodes. And really, if you watch the entire first season, and that's all you see, 
it makes a very complete story. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I mean, it, the, the continuity solidifies as you go on. And I think that definitely is partially because who knew what was going to happen with this? Mm-hmm. There was nothing like this ever before. So whether or not it would be renewed was totally up in the air. I wasn't sure if it was going to be renewed at the end of Prophecy Girl. I was like, do I get more of this? Yeah, I don't think anybody was. I don't think Joss knew. I don't think even Joss knew until later on when it was popular. And I actually do have numbers. Welcome to the Hellmouth earned a Nielsen rating of 3.4, which means 3.4% of all Nielsen families watched it. It was the 100th most watched episode of television that aired during the week of March 16th. It wasn't like a super huge success, but I mean, it was successful enough. And I think that's something that we're going to find going throughout the seasons is that Buffy was never a huge success, but it was always, it always had a cult following because even in the first season, I remember seeing articles and TV guide or the newspaper that's like, there's this weird little show that's kind of cool and maybe you should check it out. The funny thing, though, is by 90s standards, it wasn't a huge success. But with the TV networks now struggling for ratings, they would be delighted oh, yeah, at a definitely. show that made the ratings it was getting. Right. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure it gets similar numbers to something like Supernatural, which is going into season like 13 or whatever. So, and I mean, Buffy was something that several times they weren't sure if it was going to be renewed or not. Yeah. <laughs> And also, this episode was uh, nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Makeup, of all things. Huh. Which I was actually going to say that the makeup and special effects in the this first episode were not... Yeah, I guess by 90s standards, they were really good. But going back and watching them now, some of them are a bit cringy. I mean, just uh, compared to what they do later on in the series, there's one particular jump cut of Darla transforming and... I'm just like, yeah, people are doing better stuff than that on YouTube these days. So, Yeah, I mean, that that's actually one of my general observations about this episode. And uh, it's kind of the, the thing that kept coming back to me is like, they're not quite there yet. Yeah. With, with lots of things. The characterizations aren't quite what we would come to see, except Xander. Xander seems to be Xander. Uh, except for that whole skateboarding thing the one time but but his personality is pretty much what we would whereas buffy's still trying to fit in yeah and that's a little weird to see going back and cordelia is a little almost too cordelia yeah and willow's a bit too hesitant she doesn't quite fit into that She's kind of quirky and... Yeah, I couldn't decide if that was that the characterization hadn't quite clicked yet or if that was just part of her, what became her art, is that she starts out here and by meeting Buffy, she gains the confidence to do more. I think partially, and then there's also the fact that they really couldn't afford to dress Willow better than this because, I mean, she does dress in, like, really funky stuff in the later seasons, but it's actually, a lot of it was designer. Right. So this is, I think it might have actually been from Sears. (laughs) (laughs) From the school uniform section. Yeah, and I think with Xander, I think one of the reasons why he was just so dead on is because Xander's Joss. Yes. I mean, just, he's flat out, he's Joss. That's exactly what I was thinking. And I actually did make a note of it. I think it's actually in my Harvest notes that Xander 
bugs me. Oh, Xander bugs <laughs> That's me. one of the things that is coming back and rewatching it. Is I really liked Xander when I first watched the show, but going back and watching it now, I'm like, you are such a fucking nice guy. Oh, absolutely. I was gonna that's in my notes too. Is gosh, I remember how much I loved Xander at the time. He was sarcastic and he had that cute 90s floppy boy haircut that I loved so much. But going it and watching it as like a, I mean, 22 is sort of an adult, but really as an adult <laughs> adult, I'm sort of like, oh man, you are in a nice guy. You're right. Really big fucking nice guy. Yeah, I mean, Xander, in these two episodes, I think this and The Harvest, Xander comes off like, possibly a little better. Maybe I'm misreading it or you have a different opinion, but I think he comes off better than he might Otherwise, just because Jesse's so awful. Yeah, we haven't even talked about Jesse yet. Because Jesse's really annoying. Yeah, Jesse's really annoying. And I think, if I recall correctly, in the original script, Joss wrote, Xander's the type of guy who's going to grow out of his awkwardness. Jesse's not. And in fact, he does not. And he does not. He's not given the chance. And I did make a mention of, you know, poor Jesse. Not only, spoiler, spoiler, you know, but, you know, Jesse gets killed, but he gets completely forgotten by his friends for just ever and ever yeah. and ever. They never come back to that. Yeah, that, that's always sort of bothered me that they've never mentioned Jesse ever again. And he was obviously probably he just was their as best important. Friend. Yeah, he was Vander's best friend. Yeah. Willow knew him really well. I suspect he was roaming around the playground with them when, you know, Xander was taking the heads off of Willow's Barbies and giving her yellow crayons. So Yeah, there was a, in a draft of conversations with dead people from season seven, uh, Jesse was supposed to come back and talk to Xander. Wow. Uh, but they weren't able to get Eric Balfour. I think at the time he was doing Six Feet Under. Sounds about right. That's a shame. That would have been really interesting. It would have been really interesting if they had brought him back and actually had him call Xander out on the fact that he was like this forgotten friend that was, you know, supposed to be really close to them. And then they just kind of fit Buffy in. You know, Buffy is like Jesse, but better because Xander wants to fuck her. So <laughs> that's really his whole everything is Xander is so focused on basically getting in Buffy's pants. Yeah. Yeah. Which given his age is not surprising. I mean, not, not a good thing, but yeah. And other notes that I made is that considering that I am a nineties girl, the fashions and hairstyles in this, I still think are super cute. I don't know about season one. Season one, I'm a little like, uh, but I did note that, is this the one where Buffy has that blue pleather jacket? I believe she does. Yeah, I think so. I had a very similar jacket and I wore the short dresses with the knee boots. You know, I just, I remember dressing like that. Absolutely. I did not dress like that. I wanted to dress like that. But looking back on it now, I'm just like, you know what? I have no problem with, you know, th those fashion choices. I mean, occasionally you, g you get the really cringy one, but it doesn't bother me at all. There are a couple of cringy ones that I'm like, oh yeah, that's very 90s, except for Cordelia. Cordelia's kind of classic. Always so classic, no matter how weird and, you know, 90s the fashion choices are. And you can sort of remind yourself of what era you're going in as the show goes through based on what they're wearing. But yeah, Cordelia is always, even from the first episode, super classic and would not be embarrassed to be seen in the same outfits now. Really trying to look at this and seeing how it's been dated. Probably the most dated thing is that nobody's using phones. Right. Phones, yes. phones don't exist. And I know sometime later this season, I think it was Never Kill a Boy on the First Date, 
Buffy has a beeper. Yeah. Which at the time was a big thing. But yeah, I think that's the thing that dates it the most, that nobody has cell phones. I think actually while I was watching The Harvest, there was a specific point where I was like, oh yeah, no cell phone. Yeah. (laughs) This would have been totally different if there were cell phones. Yeah. I think it makes it charming and interesting and... They have to find their way around these problems that nowadays they could just whip out the phone and go, don't go into that whatever. The vampires are there. Whereas this way, there's a little more peril of not being connected. Later on in this series and in Angel, they do start to introduce cell phones. And and there always had to be some reason why the cell phones didn't work. They either dropped them or Angel's, you know, what? several hundred year old man and doesn't know how to use his cell phone uh, which I always found very cute but we'll be talking about Angel at another time there were a couple of pop culture references which really kind of sets it in its place like uh, Cordelia and Buffy talking about James Spader and John Tesh and John Tesh yeah I think that's the scene that we turned on that was when we were flipping through channels my roommates and I were like what is this thing but that conversation is just so hilarious yeah yeah it's a really good conversation and it really kind of sets up Cordelia and Buffy and this actually leads into you know talking about specific characters and just this episode is of course huge because it's introducing everybody and one thing I made a note of is that Buffy is portrayed as being a popular girl who is just kind of gone down on her luck, but she is kind of the blonde cheerleader type and Cordelia immediately gravitates to her. But Buffy goes and seeks out Willow. Part of me is wondering if this is, while the Buffy movie is not canon, it's canon-ish, and they do into, they do have a comic later, which is canon, that introduces Pike back into things. So we're to extrapolate that something around there happened. So Buffy at this point is able to see past popularity and you know see more of people who are of of worth but maybe not terribly popular so she does go to willow which i think is something that really establishes buffy's character yeah well in the movie her so-called best friends the popular girls really abandon her and so maybe that is why she's chosen to seek out willow because she maybe doesn't want to get so involved with that whole popularity thing again. There's some of that. I think there's also the fact that when she does seek out Willow, in that scene, Cordelia shows up. Even before that, Cordelia shows her attitude towards Willow. And I think her initial interaction between, the initial interaction we see between Cordelia and Willow kind of pushes Buffy in that direction. And then the later interaction when Buffy's actually talking to Willow and Cordelia comes over and is completely awful... I think that cements Buffy's allegiances, if you will. It's, you mm-hmm. know, let's face it, Cordelia here is not a not a good person. No, <laughs> she's, she's really not. pretty awful. I mean, she gets better, but here she's just, again, it, she hasn't become the Cordelia we will come to know. But what we do see is just not good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, Cordelia's really, I think, going through both Buffy and Angel. Cordelia has kind of the largest character arc of any of the characters because she changes just so much from her oh, initial yeah. appearance. Maybe with the possible exception of Spike because Spike certainly changes quite a bit. True. But yeah, Cordelia is awful in this first episode and 
one thing that struck me is just how small the cast is. Not in terms of them being babies, even though they are, but when I think about Buffy, there's just so many characters that come to mind. You know, Spike and Oz and Anya. But when you actually go back to the first season, I mean, David Boreanaz wasn't even a regular at the time. He just came up every once in a while. Right. So, and I mean, Cordelia is part of the regular cast, but she is not part of the regular group until we get to when she was bad. So it's really just kind of the core four. And this whole first season is about them kind of developing their bond together. And even with this first half, because Welcome to the Hellmouth first aired, it was Welcome to the Hellmouth and the Harvest as like a two-hour movie. And we're addressing it separately because I don't know if you can even find the two-hour version of it now. I think everywhere it's split into two. Yeah, I don't know of a source for... I mean, it might be on YouTube somewhere i i don't know i think it's pretty much exactly the same they're just it's the same it's just they're split up yeah they're just split up even in this first episode willow is not actually part of the group yet because it's only at the very end of this one that she's taken by thomas kind of interesting to talk about this one without talking about the harvest but i think there's just so much to talk about with these two that we do oh, yeah. need to address them yeah separately. i'm trying to not talk about you know what happens in the harvest i'm only staying on the page of my notes that has the hell mouth. So much of this episode was dealing with Buffy trying to stay out of slaying and then kind of being pulled back into it. And so much of her relationship with Xander. There's a lot of Buffy and Xander together to the point of me wondering if Buffy and Xander were originally supposed to be like the couple on the show. I'm not sure because they Certainly did not know exactly what they were doing from the beginning because they didn't know the angel was going to be a vampire yet. But I don't know if that was... I think that's actually a scene in The Harvest where you, you see him in the sun, so... I think they knew. They shot all these 12 episodes all at the same time with no feedback and then just released them as 12. So they knew Angel was going to be a vampire. They just hadn't figured out how to shoot him and <laughs> not give away the secret. Really, this episode, there's a lot of Buffy and there's a lot of Xander. And I mean, part of that also might have to do with how much Joss loved writing Xander. Yeah, as much as Xander drives me crazy, he really does get the best one-liners. He really does. Really yeah. just zingers. Yeah, he does. He's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for me to remember how much I love Xander now. Whereas now I find him completely annoying until maybe... He meets Anya, actually. Well, I think, you know, part of that is it's getting older and also the fact that writing in the 90s was a little bit different. There is going to be stuff that comes up in later episodes where I'm going to... <laughs> You're actually probably going to have to shut me up because I'm going to be saying, <laughs> you know what, if they were doing this today, they wouldn't be able to do that because I have feelings. Oh, yeah. No, the, it's... In, in 20 years, things have definitely changed. Of course, we've also... What's uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer without villains? We're also in, in this episode introduced to the Master and to a character that didn't seem like she was going to be that important, but becomes super important throughout the Buffyverse. We get Darla. Yeah, I had noticed that because she really comes across as a one-off here. Yeah, oh, she will um, become extremely important. Yeah, well, in Buffy, I think in the first season, she only appears in this. And then if I remember correctly, she appears in Angel, and that's it. Yeah, she appears in the episode Angel, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I have a note. 
And it's like, what's with the simpering Darla? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's just simpering and in front of the master, and it's not yeah. the Darla we know. Because obviously, I don't think they had any inkling. They had no clue they were, about. They what didn't they even were know they were going to have a spin off. Yeah, Darla, she's simpering in front of the master. She comes off as a lot younger than she would in particularly once we get over onto Angel. I mean, they portray her as a high school student here. And I did make a note that Darla really kind of comes off as like a shadow archetype to Buffy because Buffy is supposed to be the story of the pretty blonde walking down the alley and the monster comes up behind her. The pretty blonde takes the monster out. But then actually, if you look at the opening of this episode, you have the pretty blonde girl who's going through, you know, a dark corridor, and it turns out that she's the monster. Right. So they really kind of play with that. Yeah. Absolutely. And I know Julie Ben had auditioned for the role of Buffy. So I think giving her this Darla role was a way of saying, hey, we really liked you, but be a vampire. Yeah. And I, and I think that Julie Benz is great. I always really enjoyed her on Angel, but I don't think she has that it, that thing that Sarah Michelle Gellar has that just shines a little brighter Mm -hmm. but you know it's always good to see her and the makeup is just they couldn't talk in the first season makeup at all oh no they can't their diction is terrible (laughs) yeah i think they probably had standard teeth and prosthetics for everyone and it was only in later seasons that they were building them custom for everybody that would certainly make sense we get mark metcalf as the master you mean this you mean the sass master? And, and Brian Thompson is also just wonderful. I love his performance as Luke. I've, I, I've yeah. always loved it. It's yeah. really, I'm, I'm almost sorry we don't ever see him again. It strikes me as strange that you have this character like Luke, who does come off as a very strong bad guy, and then they just kill him off in the first episode, which apparently is Brian Thompson's you know lot in life when it comes to Buffy because he's always playing super ca- powerful characters to get killed yeah. off in two parters. Right, Brian Thompson in the nineties he was like the go to guy if you were gonna have you know like your big hulking scary guy because you know he had he had a run on X Files if I recall correctly. Yeah, it was the yes. alien assassin. He was. Yeah, the alien bounty hunter, yeah. Yeah. And he was in a ton of other stuff where it was just like, we, we need some scary guy. Oh, well, we better get go get Brian. But yeah, he was he was very good because he's, he's not just big and scary. He is also, he has that low voice that is just in a very measured way of speaking that is just very intimidating. Yeah. He, he's the Ted Cassidy or Richard Keel of his generation, I think. <laughs> I always like seeing Brian Thompson and I love the master. It's like a simpler yeah. time on Buffy. And I think I just said a minute ago, he's the sass master. He really is. Yeah. Yes. This sort of like under where you're like, wait, what did the villain just do? And can we talk about the homoerotic tension between the master and Luke? And the un- <laughs> there, that, that one unfortunate shot where Luke's head is basically shot. So like, it's at crotch level to the master. <laughs> it's just, you're like, what is that? It's, Creepily homoerotic, just tiny little moment there. That's vampires for you. That's, that you is know, vampires, but I, I really think it was a the director not realizing what the angle looked like. Oh, yeah. Until definitely. later on. And you're like, but uh, yeah, the, the Master and Luke's relationship, I wish we knew a little bit more. Also, I wish we knew more about the Order of Aurelius and how it works. I- I'm obsessed with the idea of the Order of Aurelius. Yeah, and how, how that works. And then you see them again later in Angel episodes. But you don't yeah. really get sort of really how it... 
hard, solid facts about how that works. Yeah. And the bloodline and, and all that good stuff. Because all of our, the Fang gang are all technically members of the Order of Aurelius. This is how much of a nerd I am. I actually have a bloodline of Aurelius family tree that I made. I love it. I need to see that. <laughs> I'll provide a link in um, the notes that come with this episode. Another thing I'm going to include in the notes is going to be a link to a YouTube video. When this episode first aired, and I don't think it's ever aired since, they had a promo spot talking about two slayers. One of them was Lucy Hanover from Virginia in 1866, and the other is an unidentified Chicago woman in 1927. And it's this very cool little promo, which is just trying to set up slayer lore. And they never put on any DVDs, but somebody put it up on YouTube because I guess they had taped the first episode and it's all, you know, there's like tracking on it and everything, but it is worth seeing just for historical context. Oh, I remember that little video. I wish they'd gotten more into Slayer lore, much like I'd love to see more Order of Aurelius stuff because I'm just that kind of nerd. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm the same kind of nerd. I know. (laughs) That's why we're friends. (laughs) Yeah. And that's why we're doing this. And an important thing to note on every episode of Buffy is they had so much music. It's like that that's how smaller bands were coming up in the 90s. It's like, let's get on Buffy. And Welcome to Hellmouth is no exception. And they had Antiheroes by Shake the Faith played when Buffy was going to school with Joyce. And Saturated, Believe, Swirl, and Things Are Changing by Sprung Funky. Neither of those bands do I have any like knowledge of outside of this episode. Well, I actually looked up Sprung Monkey after this, <laughs> since they are the band that actually plays the bronze. Yeah. And apparently they are still around. Really? <laughs> yeah, I obviously probably not as big as they were around when they did Buffy, but they're, they're still out there. Yeah, well, I do think the Buffy music is super interesting just in the fact that I don't know if any of them were, like, super big. I mean, like, occasionally they would get, like, a... Especially in the later seasons, they would get... They got Amy they Mann get in names. season Yeah, seven. I was going to say, Jeez. like, Amy Mann. Occasionally they would get names, but actually, for the most part, Buffy was kind of like a stepping stone to hopefully more success though it usually didn't quite work out that way except chibomato because they claw dance (laughs) (laughs) oh we'll be talking about chibomato because that (laughs) yeah i have feelings about that scene yes i'm sure we'll get there (laughs) several weeks when we get to season two yeah right but the joke had to be made yes speaking of sound just one thing that kind of hit me right away, the voiceover at the beginning, the, you know, in every generation. Yeah. Was a did, did they just like record a temp track and never get a real voice actor to do that? It sounds awful. They re- re- eventually replace it with Giles, but it's right. not, yeah. for, but, but but not for a while. Not for a while. And it's, it's really not good. No. <laughs> I mean, the guy they have doing it is just, he's not good. I, I, I'm sorry. I think that's a lack of money on their part, because that's actually the same guy that they had doing the promos at the time. And I'm trying to think of when they actually changed over to Giles. Was it during... Was I, it the I start don't know either. Two? We have to check. I, I don't I'm know. Sure we'll find the out. Promo, the <laughs> yeah. promo guy cracks me up, though. Like, if you go back and watch those old promos, it's, now! You know what? I'm not even going to try to do the voice, because I can't <laughs> do it justice. But it, it's... I don't know. Go find some, because it's just ridiculous. And they use him 
I don't know, I, at least the first three or four seasons. Yeah. The promo guy. <laughs> he makes me giggle because it's now on a new Buffy the Vampire. <laughs> Again, don't ask me to do the impersonation. It's bad. <laughs> we didn't really talk about Joyce. Oh, we didn't talk, we didn't about, talk Joyce. about Joyce. Yeah, she's a very small part in this. Yeah. But it really kind of defines who Joyce is. Like, up until, I'd say, like, season five, when she becomes more of a character. Kind of her, it's like, honey, I love you, you're going to do great, try not to get kicked out. That kind of really defines who Joyce is. The first line, the way they have her calling to Buffy, that so was not Christine Sutherland, and it stuck out to me so badly. I think the casting of Joyce is wonderful, because she really does, Christine Sutherland really does look like she could be Sarah Michelle Gellar's mother. Oh, yeah. She does. So that, yeah. that was really lovely. I always really liked her as an actress, but in the first couple seasons, wow, she's really undermining to her child's self-esteem. Yeah. But yeah, she doesn't have much to do in this episode, and I really no. grow to love Joyce, but this first couple seasons, I really wanted to take her to parenting classes. It's really not until season three after she finds out about Buffy being the Slayer that she really starts to come into her own as a character and is a, a little more accepting. By the way, I mean, I know we've been talking about Buffy just a lot of the other episodes, but if you have not seen all of Buffy, there are going to be spoilers. <laughs> so, I mean, the show's been out for 20 years, and this is specifically a rewatch but just to warn people if you've decided finally that you're going to give in and watch Buffy and listen to this podcast after you do we're going to be talking about stuff that happens on later this is probably not the podcast you're looking for yeah. if you're just right. starting on your first watch this may not be the best thing to listen to yeah after you've watched the whole thing once come back and re-listen oh yeah definitely we'll still be here we'll still be here <laughs> What else? I, I'm trying to look at my notes to see if I had anything. I mean, we talked about Buffy, but here's something I, I always strikes me about the Buffy fandom. Buffy is never anyone's favorite character. No. Which is weird because she, I think she really is my favorite character. I think Buffy might have main character syndrome. This does happen with a lot of main characters. I mean, in the Harry Potter fandom... Harry Potter's rarely people's favorite character. It's because you're with them all of the time. You see absolutely everything from them. There's not really a whole lot you can kind of build on to. Like with somebody like Xander, you can really identify with him because he's he's not the main hero. And also you don't see him all of the time. So it's like maybe during his spare time he's doing this or whatever. And Buffy just had such a burden to bear and is just so larger than life that I think that a lot of people... Really, I found that the, you're either Willow's your favorite character, Xander's your favorite character, or Spike's your favorite character. I love all three of those characters. I do, but I don't know. There's something about Buffy that I guess I've always sort of related to. I can't slay vampires, which is a darn shame. <laughs> but, um, Have you ever tried? You know, if I could find some, maybe. Well, you, you'll never know if you don't try, so. I mean, I'm sure at the beginning it was that whole doomed romance with the broody guy that I was probably falling for because that was what my 20s were all about. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I just, I've grown to love her more than more over the years. She's smart. Mm -hmm. She's inventive. She's this... She's a young woman in the world trying to figure out not only how to do this chosen duty, but relate to her mother, relate to her friends, try to maybe get a decent grade in school. <laughs> uh, 
balance how she's going to approach her relationships with men. Uh, I just, I just love her and I don't think she gets as much credit. And also Sarah Michelle Geller doesn't get the credit she deserves. I think she really doesn't. She was amazing. She's really amazing. And I, I was going to, I have a little bit of Sarah Michelle Geller weird trivia. So when I watched the show for the first time, I absolutely knew who she was because we were going to mock the show because we were very serious theater majors. But growing up, all my children was like my jam, right? So Sarah Michelle Gellar ended up winning a daytime Emmy for playing the famous Erica Kane's evil long lost daughter. Um, so we recognized her from that. And then she was, if you can go to YouTube and find it, it's the worst thing you're ever going to see. It's horrible. She was on a teen soap opera called Swan's Crossing that had maybe 15 episodes. <laughs> and my friends and I would read it to filth after school because it was it was the schmaltziest thing ever. But I knew who she was and I knew she mm-hmm. was good. So I guess maybe that kind of colored my view even going into the show. I'm like, oh, hey. It's Kendall from All My Children, but blonde. The only one that I recognized coming in was Allie. I recognized her as, hey, that's Dan Aykroyd's kid from My Stepmother is an Alien. Which she was in with Seth Green. Yes. Yeah. And I, I recognized uh, Tony Head from the, the coffee commercials. Yeah, the, the Taster's yeah. Choice, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think it was Taster's Choice, yeah. I think it was Taster's Choice in North America. But it was something else in the UK, but that's okay. We're mm-hmm. North Americans here. Yeah. So yeah, no, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Buffy herself because I do think she gets Fair a little. Enough, yeah. I'm going to be the Buffy cheerleader on this Buffy oh, we'll, podcast. We'll, we'll, we will Please definitely do. be talking a lot yeah, about Buffy absolutely. because there's just so much to talk about her with. I do think at this point, we've kind of reached the end of what we could talk about without getting into the harvest. And I do want to spend a good amount of time talking about the harvest. I was just saying my one other thing was the line that got the biggest laugh in my house when I was rewatching was the, you look like DeBarge. <laughs> I made a note about that. And I said that was the last time DeBarge was mentioned until Holtzman was dancing to it in Ghostbusters. Absolutely. That got a giggle from my uh, fiance. I think that was the only time he looked up from what he was doing was the, you look like DeBarge. And that it was so great that maybe that fashion power was never mentioned again, but it's definitely better than the menstrual cramps. The power that she had in the movie. We will eventually get to talking about the movie. The movie, right. We can't start off with it. No, but we definitely will talk about it later. So I I think that's about what I had. So there you go. Yeah. All right, then. So that's going to be it for this week. Next time, we'll be talking about uh, episode two, The Harvest. So until then, uh, this is MC. This is Andy. This is David. And we'll see you next week. So this is the section of the episode where we'll be reading comments and emails from our listeners. But of course, since this is the first episode, there aren't any. You can leave us comments at our website, returntothehellmouth.com, or on Tumblr and Facebook at Return to the Hellmouth, or on Twitter at Hellmouth Returns, or email us at returntothehellmouth at gmail.com. We'll be sure to read anything you have for us on the show. The next episode, The Harvest, is going to be on March 21st, on our normal posting day of Tuesday. See you then. Grr. Arg. Grr. Arg.